Good morning, church family. It's great to see you here. And uh, to all our visitors that are here, we're grateful to have you worshiping King Jesus with us this morning. I invite you to stick six weeks with us, is what we say to visitors, so that we can get to know you and you can get to know us. So stick six with us um, here at Wescobarish Church. Well, we're going through this series on uh, 1 Peter. And so you're going to need a copy of God's Word. Make your way to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Word of God that much, First uh, Peter is one of the 66 books that make the entirety of the Holy Bible that we have. First Peter is on the, the right side, so go ahead and turn your uh, Bibles there. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the Welcome Center. And uh, before we even dive into this passage to read today, just really grateful for our worship team, um, our tech team uh, that, that put together our services each Sunday. Just really grateful for the time, the intentionality that they have um, towards the worship even singing, singing those songs this morning, it was just uh, encouraging to my soul, and it doesn't come from um, uh, a lack of time. It's really them pouring in a lot of time into doing that. So really, really grateful for all of them and what they do. All right, First Peter chapter 4. Before we read this passage, it's interesting because what you're going to find out if you've been with us through this entire series of First Peter is this is going to sound kind of oddly familiar. And the reason being is because Peter as he nears the end, as he nears the finish line of his letter, he's going to talk about the same thing that he talked about in chapter 1. Chapter 1, he talked about pain, and he talked about suffering, and he talked about, for believers, we go through various trials, which could be anything from marital struggles to financial difficulties to just uh, the, the brokenness of this world that we live in. And here in chapter 4, he's going to loop back around again to talk to believers as they suffer. It's extremely important that we as believers know how to, how to handle suffering that happens in our life, how to not just handle it, but um, thrive and survive in the midst of suffering. And so Peter's going to talk to us about that today, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 4. You follow along as I read. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at a fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of God. Bow with me this morning. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood from your word today. Now take a moment right now to pray silently to the Lord that he would 
illuminate your mind and your heart to know God's word and to love God's word this morning. Would you pray and ask him to do that now? you pray also for me as I look at this passage and we as a church talk about how we suffer well to the glory of God, would you just pray that I would be able to speak God's truth clearly this morning? Pray for me now. Lord, I pray for those in this room and those that may be watching online. I pray for them that today, through your spirit, you would comfort those who are suffering. And Lord, that you would also prepare us for suffering. And Lord, I pray, even most of all, that you would save people from eternal suffering through the blood of your Son. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, this week I was uh, reading about a pastor that some of you may have heard of, uh, Tim Chalice. And back in 2020, he actually suddenly lost his 20-year-old son. It was very sad and difficult. And in this article, they're talking to Tim about it. And Tim is describing this great suffering and agony that he went through. And it's interesting because he describes it and he says it's so agonizing emotionally but not theologically. And in this article, he starts to talk about the difference between the two. How much of a struggle it is emotionally, yes, but not theologically. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, in this article, he said, the moment that we heard the news about our son, we knew the character of God. We knew the promises of God. We knew where we stood with God. Unbeknownst to us, we had not prepared ourselves for this, or we had been preparing ourselves for this with truths that we had studied and learned for years. We were ready to call upon them and rely upon them in our great moment of suffering. He said there's no way we could have prepared ourselves emotionally for the agony of losing a child. No way. But we did prepare ourselves theologically. During these days... We have not asked the big theological questions of whether God is good or not. We already knew that God was good. We had not asked the big theological questions whether there was something that had happened outside of God's control or whether God was punishing us or whether there really was a heaven or a hell. Those issues were already considered and discussed and decided long ago. We had established in our minds and in our hearts these truths which we would interpret our experience. Now, why I say that to you this morning is because this is what I believe that Peter's trying to communicate to you and I through this text. That he would make us equipped. We'll never be equipped emotionally, but we would be equipped theologically. That we would be equipped with the two things, the right perspective and then a right theological view of God. And so I want us to look at those two things from this passage, the proper perspective and the righteous God. First, let's look at the proper perspective. And this is the proper perspective, which is going to seem so far and it's so odd to us. But it's this. 
there's blessings in the suffering. The blessings in the suffering. And he's going to talk about two primary blessings that we get as we navigate suffering in our life. But first, when he talks about suffering, he, he tells us that it is a fiery trial. Did you see that in verse 12? That it's a fiery trial. Now, I want to be specific in this because in the past, in the letter of 1 Peter, he, like I said, he's talked about many sufferings and many trials that we're going to go through. But the fiery trial specifically that he's talking about right here is suffering for the name of Christ. That we would suffer as what he uses being insulted. Verse 14 says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, that's the trial he's talking about, the trial of persecution, the trial of of being canceled for Christ, being rejected by the world, but being received by Christ. And what's interesting is this fear of being insulted or canceled or rejected spans all of our life. In the ministry that I've done, I've served in in youth ministry, and I've talked with students who have really struggled with, well, if I pray at the lunch table, people might make fun of me. (laughs) Or if I share the gospel with some of my friends, then they won't include me anymore. Like, I'll be isolated. Like, that, that fear, that fiery trial is there even when you're a youth. And you would think that hopefully, maybe one day I'll outgrow this, but the reality is we never do. You go into college and you still have that deep-rooted fear of I want to be accepted or I want to be a a part. And so if I say things about Christ, I might be isolated or made fun of. But one day you think we'll get better, right? One day we won't fear this. Then you get out and you get in the workforce and you start to realize real, real quick that there's some people that are very hostile towards the gospel and towards Christ. And again, maybe you are a little fearful of this trial before you. I would encourage you to be bold for Christ. To be bold for him. This is what Peter's trying to get us to see. We're going to go through trials. This is going to happen. If you say you follow Christ, this should be expected. And if you think about your life and you're like, well, Ryan, I've, yeah, I've been a Christian since I was 10 and never once has anybody made fun of me because of my faith, then I would just challenge you to evaluate your life. To really evaluate if you're following Christ so closely that people can see Christ in you. Because if you are just as dark in your words and in your thoughts and your actions as the world are, then they're never going to make fun of you because you look just like them. But Peter is telling us here that as we follow Christ and we look like Christ, the world's going to know. They're going to notice. And Peter's mentioned this multiple times in his letter. That they'll even mock you and make fun of you. And here they'll insult you. So brace for impact. And if you're thinking, well, I've never had that issue, then maybe you're not a part of the game. Maybe Christ has never changed your life. It's kind of like we do pickup basketball sometimes here on Sunday nights. Maybe if you're playing in a pickup basketball game and you start to realize, like, nobody's guarding me. (laughs) Maybe it's because you're not in the game. (laughs) You're not a part of it. So nobody needs to guard you. You're no different than anybody else, right? But all that we would look different, that we would be in the game, that we'd be faithfully following Jesus Christ and his example. Being a good man, people mocked him and made fun of him. And if we're going to follow Christ, it'll be the same for us. Jesus promised us that. Peter's reminding us of that. And he tells us, he actually gives a command in verse 12, do not be surprised. That's the command. 
Don't be surprised when this happened. Don't be shocked by this. When you go through pain and suffering for Christ, don't be surprised by it. And even a broader sense, as you live and navigate this broken world and deal with loss and pain, don't be surprised by it. We as believers should not be shocked as we turn the pages of Scripture and we read about a broken world, and then when suffering happens to us, we're like, oh my goodness, I never thought it was going to happen to me. No, Peter's like, don't be surprised. That is what we're called to do. Now, now notice, it doesn't say, do not be grieved. It says don't be surprised, so we shouldn't be shocked, but it doesn't say do not be grieved, because when you go through pain and suffering, it's okay to grieve. Jesus, as he went through suffering in his life, he was called a man of sorrows. And so when we deal with, with persecution that might hurt our hearts, it's okay to grieve. When we go through suffering and loss in this world, it's okay to be sorrowful. Grief will not destroy us. Surprise will. Grief is a response of weeping. That's okay. But when we respond with with surprise, let me tell you what surprise looks like. It looks like self-pity. That's what surprise looks like when suffering hits our life. Surprise looks like bitterness. Where you become bitter at God or at the world as you go through suffering, thinking, how in this world could this happen? No, we should not be surprised. This is going to happen. Grief is not going to sink you. Surprise will. So how do we overcome surprise? How do we make sure that we're not surprised by the suffering that we face in this world? Well, the first thing he tells us is to rejoice and be glad. And that is odd. That is odd. It does not say that we are going to have a jaded heart and be cynical. No, it tells us to live with wisdom and rejoicing and being glad. This is where gloom of suffering in this world and gladness are wed together. How we can have those two, God's Word is telling us. You see, this is a rough passage. It talks about suffering, many different angles, many different ways. Four times it mentions it in these eight verses that I read. Suffering, 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 trial or pain. And yet, you see, optimism is attached to it. In verse 14 and in verse 13, he talks about rejoicing. Rejoice, and again, rejoice and be glad. And then it says, you are blessed. Man, this is remarkable optimism. How in the world do we have gladness in the gloom? How in the world do we do that? Well, once again, it's that blessing of perspective. You see, we are blessed as believers as we go through our suffering. And he gives us two ways that we're blessed. First, he says that our our pain now, our suffering now, becomes praise later. In verse 13, he talks about Christ's return. When his glory is revealed. That's attached to the rejoicing. If you don't believe in the second coming of Christ, if your hope doesn't rest in there, your living hope, then you'll never rejoice. But in 13, he says rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may rejoice and be glad when when the glory is revealed. This is when Christ comes again. 
You see, our pain that we're experiencing right now, our persecution, our canceling for following Christ, one day will be praised when we get to glory. When Christ comes again, our pain will turn to praise. That's what happens for believers. But for non-believers, your pain turns to more pain. The book of Revelation tells us that there will be non-believers who have persecuted Christians, who have rejected Christ. When Christ comes again and his glory is revealed, the book of Revelation says that there will be people that says, may the mountains fall on us. We can't stand in the presence of his glory. We don't want to stand in the presence of his glory. So may the mountains just crush us and fall on us. Their pain in this world, their suffering, leads to more pain and more suffering eternity. But for believers, we rejoice and we're glad. Why? Because we know that this is not the end of our pain. This is not the end of our life. That there's something more. There's a living hope that we have when Christ comes again, when his glory is revealed. Now, Peter's clear that not all suffering ends in benefit. Even for the believer, according to this. In verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, and as a meddler. Peter's like, don't sin and suffer in your life and then think, well, I'm going to have praise and blessing later. No, there's some sins that you're not going to have this joy and suffering or joy coming out of it. And he starts really heavy. He starts with a murderer. And we might be thinking, well, that doesn't apply to us. And then, or a thief. Well, that's, that's probably not us either. Or be an evildoer. Well, maybe there's sometimes I might fall into that category. And then he says, as a meddler, which is really interesting, a meddler. This is somebody who's antagonistic just to be antagonistic. Somebody that just likes to pick and to prod. And then when they, they are attacked in return, then they're like, oh, I'm just suffering. I'm just suffering for Jesus. No, as believers, Peter's already told us that we should love others and, and, and share the gospel with respect and honor. Not as a meddler just picking or prodding, but that we would share the good news of Jesus with, with grace and with truth. So he says, there's sometimes we're going to suffer, but it's self-inflicted wounds. And don't look at the, the coming of Christ to, to make the self-inflicted wounds better. No, repent of your sins. Come to Christ for healing from those wounds. This is what he's telling us to do. The second perspective that we have to grasp, the second blessing, and honestly it's the greater blessing in my mind, is that pain now brings the presence of the Lord. Pain brings presence now. In verse 14, it tells us that the Spirit of God rests upon you. Now, this is where you get the word blessed that this whole point is framed around in verse 14. It says that you are blessed. Now, does that mean that we're blessed with health, wealth, and happiness? Is that the kind of blessing that God is promising us, this prosperity gospel? No. If you look, it tells us right after that. It's the presence of God that is our blessing in the midst of our suffering. This is the greatest thing that we could ever have. We've said it again. We follow Christ not because he makes our life better, but because he's better than life. His presence in our life is better than any suffering that we'll go through. And so he uses this word as we're suffering for Christ, we are blessed because the spirit of glory 
and of God rests upon you. And this word for rest is like a, a hovering. And it's supposed to actually, um, it's an echo from an Old Testament passage where God's people were in the, the wilderness and God's presence rested with the people. And so they went through suffering and pain and hardship. They're out in the middle of this desert and they're baking and God and his goodness and his presence puts a cloud in the sky to provide shade for his people in the heat. They, they get thirsty and God provides water for them to drink. They get hungry and God provides food, manna from, from heaven down to fill their stomachs. And again and again and again and again, God provides everything they need through their suffering and through their pain. And Peter's bringing that language back up again. And he's saying that same God that rested with his people generations ago is the same God that rests with you now as you go through your pain and through your suffering. Now, I want to be clear that every believer, if you've trusted in Christ, confessed your sins, repented of your sins, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. That is theologically accurate. But the presence that it's talking about here is just like a, a, a tangible kind of more real presence that you maybe sense or feel within your soul, within your mind. And that's the kind of presence he's talking about. So if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is already in you. But as we are persecuted, slandered, as Christ was persecuted and slandered, the Spirit rests in you and walks with you through that suffering. God promises in his word that he is near to the brokenhearted. It's just in a unique way as we walk through suffering. Some of you know this. Some of you have walked through hard and difficult times and have felt the nearness of God like no other time in your life. You've never forgotten it. And that's what Peter's talking about here. There's a man named Richard Wormbrandt, who's a Romanian pastor. He spent years in prison for preaching the gospel underneath communist reign. And many of those 12 years was in solitary confinement, 12 feet under the ground. And so it is dark, it is damp, and he was there by himself. And in 1966, he was here in America and was speaking before our U.S. Senate, and they asked him to remove his shirt to show the scars on his body all because he was preaching and proclaiming the gospel of God. And for years he suffered in that way. And in his book, Tortured for Christ, would really encourage you to go read it. It's a great book. In there he talks about several different ways that horrifically he was tortured for Christ. And yet he continued to proclaim the gospel. One of them, he said, they built a box that was a little bigger than a human body. And you would have to stand in this box, and they would drive nails in every corner of the box. Which, as long as you didn't move, it didn't bother you at all, he says. But over hours upon hours upon hours that they would leave you in this box, at some point your legs would get fatigued. And you'd have to choose which side to lean into the nails on. And yet, with that story as well as many others of this horrific torture that he went through, he said that him, along with the other believers, never felt the nearness of God like they felt in those years. He said, I long for that again, to feel the nearness of God in the midst of being slandered and insulted and, and tortured 
the nearness of God, the presence of God was doing what Peter said it would do, was resting with him as he walked through that pain and that suffering. So just know the fears that you have of being canceled. Know the blessings of God. Gain that perspective so you can speak the words that, that he says on the screen. That living for Jesus gives you joy amid the tribulation. That's what he said. That was his quote out of all of the suffering and pain he went through. That there could be joy found in Jesus. That's what Peter is promising us here. That we can have gladness in the gloom because of Jesus and his spirit being with us. Now, if you are here today, maybe you're checking out church um, for the first time. And you're sitting here thinking, gosh, that is a terrible sales pitch. (laughs) Like, why would I ever believe in this Jesus? Like, Ryan, don't get me wrong. I appreciate your honesty to, like, talk about that. If you follow Christ, that I'm going to be mocked and have persecution in my life. But why would I ever sign up for that? The reason why I would say you should follow Christ, there's many reasons. I could give you a long list. But here's just the reality of the world. Here's the perspective maybe you need to grasp this morning. Is that you are going to suffer in this life. Period. None of us can avoid suffering. We are in a broken, fallen world. We will all suffer. Would you be willing to suffer for something that promises a blessing with it? And not just a small blessing, not just a temporal blessing, but an eternal blessing. That you would have a living hope, that you would have a living God that would walk with you through your sufferings, even to the point of your last breath of death. That you would have a God that would walk with you through that. Man, he is a worthy God who through his word is preaching to us right now as we enter in suffering that he promises those that are faithful to him receive blessing through him. Oh, that's why it's worth it. That's why it's worth it. Because the presence of Christ is better than any absence of canceling or pain or slander that we would have in our life. Oh, his presence is far better than any absence of pain in our life. Christ is better. So let's gain that perspective of the blessings that can come in the middle of suffering. The second, let's rest on that theological truth of who our God is in the midst of our suffering. He is a trustworthy God in our suffering. Peter's going to highlight three ways that our God is trustworthy in suffering. He's going to tell us that he's a just God, so let's rest in his justice. He's going to tell us that he's a sovereign God, that he's in control. Things are not spinning out of control. Our God is is using our pain for a purpose. And he's also going to tell us that he's a faithful God. Oh, that we would know these truths. So when we come into those painful moments like Pastor Tim talked about earlier on, that our, theolo- our theology is set. Our emotions deeply grieve, but our theology is set in who the Lord is. He is a just God. And some of us need to remember that he's a just God because we think as we go through suffering, nobody sees it, nobody cares, it's never going to change. And Peter tells us in verse 17 that judgment is coming. For the time of judgment is to begin the household of God. 
The things that are wrong, even within the church, Christ is working to judge and correct. And that one day when he comes again, things that are broken and wrong in this world, he will judge those as well. Oh, we never fear that somebody's going to get away with a wrong. There's a suffering that's going to slip by that Christ doesn't see or doesn't notice. No, he does notice it. Because he's a just God. Now this week I've thought a good bit about that, that first part of verse 17. That judgment begins at the house of God. And this should be sobering for us as believers. Especially when you look at, just in America, all the crazy fall of, of church leaders that have faltered and failed due to pride or due to lust or whatever it might be, due to an addiction. Judgment begins in the household of God. But here's the good news with that. There's a difference between judgment that happens on believers and judgment that happens on non-believers. You see, for God's people, there's a justice, but it's a purifying fire that God will show us our idols to humble our hearts that we will follow him more faithfully. But when he judges everyone else, it's with a condemning fire. Not with a purifying fire, it's a condemning fire. And it's a condemning fire because it's a justice without the barrier of mercy. And whenever God brings justice on his people, there's still that barrier of mercy that is there. You find it all throughout the Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament. Habakkuk looks at the world and he sees the injustices and at his time with the people of God and with his nation and with the, the world. And he's like, God, when are you going to come and fix all this suffering and pain? When are you going to come and make all these things that are broken right? And what's so interesting is God says, judgment's coming. And judgment is coming. Yes, absolutely. It's coming from Assyria. And Habakkuk's like, hold on, what? It's coming from where? Assyria? Like, that's a, that's a terrible nation. They're going to come down and, 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 and judge us? Yes, because judgment starts in the house of God. But it's a purifying fire that we would repent and turn to him. And then he's like, well, what about those Assyrians? God says, I'll judge them too. But it begins with the people of God that they would change so that they can be a bright light. Ezekiel chapter 9 talks about it too, that God's judgment comes first with the people of God. He talks about how the people that are serving within the temple, God's house, are abusing it and misusing it. God says, I'm coming down on, on them hardest because they have to change. The people of God have to be bright lights in this dark world. And as I purify them, then the dark world will see that there's something different about me. Malachi, he uses the same language in Malachi that we find here in Peter, talking about a fiery trial. He talks about this judgment that's like a refiner's fire that burns away all the impurities from God's people. And if you read Malachi, once again, it starts with the priests, it starts with the Levites that they would be purified and follow Christ. This is where it starts. This is where Jesus started. Jesus started with the Jewish people, preaching and sharing with them. The harshest words that Jesus ever spoke were to the Jewish leaders who had hard hearts. The greatest act of kind of wrath that we see from Jesus is when he's flipping over tables in the temples as people try to use God just to pocket money. Instead of to worship him. See, God does have a just heart. And so when we go through suffering and pain and injustices, we trust that God is a just God. This helps us. This helps us to endure well. 
But he's not just a just God, he's a sovereign God. You see this in verse 19. It says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. Some of us read that and we think, wait, what? (laughs) Wait a minute, I don't like that. That doesn't sound good. It, It says we're suffering according to God's will. Could it actually be that God's intending to use our pain for a purpose? Could it actually be that God's intending us to walk through some kind of suffering or pain for a specific purpose and a goal? And Peter's saying, yes. Yes, that's exactly what he's doing. And this is hard for for many American uh, Christians to believe because we think, well, if I come to Christ, it's all comfort and candy. Everything is perfect. And Peter's like, no, 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 don't be surprised. Don't believe the lie that you're not going to have suffering and pain in your life. You will. Endure well, knowing that God has a purpose for your pain, that he's not going to waste it. That God will actually use it to purify you, to look more like him. This is what he's calling us and telling us to believe and understand. You see, this whole idea, this whole imagery of fire or fiery trial, fire burns up the non-essentials. The things that aren't treasures. You take a box and you put gold and silver and wood and hay in the box and you light it on fire, you're going to see all of the hay is gone. All of the wood is burned away. And the very thing that should be treasured above all is the thing that remains. And God sometimes will guide us through those valleys of the shadow of death to burn off all the things we're trusting in that are weak and fragile. Things that are like hay to our life that can't really satisfy our souls in order that we would see the greatest treasure. We'd see the one who is walking with us, his presence being with us in the midst of our suffering. Or we'd see him and treasure him for what he is. The God who is faithful and kind and loving and who will be with us through these fiery trials. You see, you have to trust that our God is a sovereign sovereign God. And if you do, then you will become better through your suffering because you're trusting in the one who's in control. You'll become better if you trust in him and his wisdom and his knowledge being far above your own. If you don't, if you don't, you won't become better. You'll become bitter. And I have walked with Different people going through same types of suffering, of loss and pain, and see them to choose two different routes. You'll see some that choose to become better, who praise God and trust in God and rest in his peace, and those who become bitter. Bitter at God or bitter at the world or bitter at this issue. Oh, if we, if we want to become better disciples of Christ, then may we trust in God's sovereignty. And we trust that things are not out of control, that God is God. Be still and know that. Be still in your suffering and know that he is God. And the great thing about this God, according to verse 19, is that he is a faithful God. We're not just trusting in the sovereignty of God and this God is a sadist. He's not at all. No, he is a faithful God. It says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our God is a faithful God. 
That word for entrust right there in verse 19 is a banking term where you would take something very valuable, your money, and you would bring it and you would entrust it. You would deposit that into somewhere you knew was safe. You would deposit that into a bank that you knew would be taken care of. And what Peter is telling us to do is in our suffering and our pain, entrust our life, all that we have, to the faithful creator, God. And the reason why I believe he's saying faithful creator when he could have chosen a number of terms is Peter's trying to get our minds to go back all the way to the beginning of time and remember God's faithfulness. Remember it. It's all throughout every generation. God has been faithful. Think about Adam. God creates Adam and he sees it's not good for Adam to be alone. So God in his faithfulness provides Eve for Adam. Adam and Eve sin and they rebel against God. They say, we're going to do our will, our way. And God still remains faithful when they're faithless. And he gives them a promise that one day he would crush the head of the serpent and free them from their sins. And there was a Messiah that was going to come. He gives them that promise because God is faithful. And then you read a little bit more in the Old Testament. You come to this guy named Abraham. And God makes a promise to them that I'm going to bless the nations through your lineage. And he's like, I'm way too old to have kids, but God is faithful to keep his promise to Abraham and provides a child for him. Man, Job. Job lost all that he had. He lost his kids in an instant. He lost all his material blessings, gone. But the faithfulness of God still remained. Even to the very end of his life, he didn't even understand all the suffering that happened, but he trusted in the faithfulness of God. Joseph was thrown in a dungeon for, for 12 years, but he still believed in the faithfulness of God and remained faithful to God, and God was true to him. The list goes on and on and on. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys had a literal fiery trial. They're thrown into a furnace, and it says there was a fourth one, like the Son of Man, who was there with them. God's presence was faithful to be with them in the midst of their persecution. Daniel is in the lion's den, and God is with them and shuts the uh, mouth of the lions. You get to people like Ruth, lost many loved ones, is very close to, to death on every side, and there she is working in a field doing slave labor. But God was faithful, protected and provided for her. David, King David had been promised the throne, and he's not king yet, and he still trusts in the faithfulness of God, even though the current king is trying to kill him. And he's out in the wilderness. God was faithful to David. Hosea, he had an unfaithful wife. He was a prophet of God. And he remained faithful to the Lord. And God was showing him through the suffering and pain in his life that God was faithful, even though his wife was not faithful. God has been faithful generation upon generation upon generation. And the greatest picture that we have of God's faithfulness is found at the cross of Christ. Jesus, that we would remember God's faithful to fulfill all of his promises, that he would send a redeemer that was just, that was sovereign, that was faithful, that would bear our sins in our place on the cross. Oh, this is, this is what we should remember. This is what should help us to think well as we navigate and handle suffering in our life. And church family, very tangibly today, what I want us to do is, is turn to the Lord's Supper to remember the faithfulness of Christ for us. And this is one of the reasons why God gave us the Lord's Supper, that we would remember his faithfulness. And as we navigate suffering, we would look back 
and praise him for being faithful, not just in his life, but also in his death and in his resurrection. And so as we come to take the Lord's Supper together, let me just say a couple words of instruction before we take it. God's word is extremely clear that this is the Lord's Supper. And I, I say it often, if this was Ryan's Supper, I would just say, hey, everybody take it and let's all take it together. But the Bible says it's the Lord's Supper, and so he extends the invitation. And he says, if you want to eat at my table, then you need to confess your sins and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, the faithful one who died in your place. And so if you're a believer, take this this morning with, with great joy, with great gladness, even if you're going through a time of suffering and pain. But if you're not a believer, when I give the, the church family just time to pray and confess sins, maybe you use that time to pray and confess Jesus as Lord of your life. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. And if you do that, then, then take the Lord's Supper with great joy and excitement, knowing that he gave his body to forgive you of your sins. He shed his blood that you could be forgiven. Now, as believers, when we take this, God's word is clear too, that we should search our own hearts. We should confess our sins that as we come to the Lord's Supper, this is a big deal. It might be a small cup, but this is a big deal in the sight of God. That we would confess our sins, and then as we take this, this is a, rem a reminder of the faithfulness of God to forgive us of all our sins. So I'm going to start us in prayer now, and I'll give you a few minutes to pray, confessing your sins before the Lord. And I'll close this out, and we'll take this Lord's Supper together.